0: I'm Kelly Rose Lamb, and this is Bold. This show is for women who believe there is more than the script we've been handed. I interview women and hear their stories to uncover the common thread of boldness running through their lives. Welcome here. This show covers a wide range of topics. We assess the self-care movement and pontificate about the need for a more holistic approach. Kate talks about the challenges faced by female entrepreneurs, especially in the VC space. For anyone interested in startups, funding, risk management, and decision-making, as well as self-care, rituals, and motherhood, this show is for you. Let me tell you a little bit more about Kate. Kate is the founder of LOBA. The idea of LOBA was conceived when, after some health challenges, Kate began a naturopathic treatment plan, which included a number of supplements. When looking for a way to organize them, Kate could not find a product to suit both her needs and her aesthetic let alone one that reminded her to take them. Kate's goal with LOBA is to emulate the feeling of cherished daily rituals and support others on their path to wellness. Kate has a background in branding and advertising and has worked with numerous healthcare organizations, including Doctors of BC, BC Family Doctors, and Health Data Coalition. She is the founder of Armature Collective, a marketing company based in Vancouver. Kate believes strongly in giving back, to arts and community services and supporting personal development. She has held numerous community leadership roles, organized charity events, and provided personal coaching to a select group of clients. I hope you enjoy the show. Kate, I am so excited to get to talk to you today. Thank you for being here. Me too. Thanks, Kelly. I am so curious to learn more about Loba. Can you tell me about your business? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So Loba is a wellness tech startup. We're based in Vancouver, BC. And basically what we're doing is trying to help people create healthy habits around pill and supplement management. Um, So we're trying to streamline the process for people. And we're starting with Loba's smart pill and supplement organizer and the Loba app. And the way that it works is you can use the app with or without our Loba device, but you essentially set reminders for when it's time to take your pills And then Loba lights up in whatever color you chose for it to glow at that reminder time. Um, It's a smart home product. So there's sensors inside the device when you remove the lid. There's a sensor inside that communicates back to the app that you've taken your pills. So I'm really trying to create a positive sentiment around taking your pills and supplements and caring for yourself that way, as well as help people with their, their wellness program.
0: What a great idea. So needed. I always go on these big kicks of taking supplements and then I never, ever, ever remember. So very, very necessary. But I would love to hear more about your personal journey. What led you to found LOBA? Yeah, well, just like you just referenced your own experience. It really came from
1: a personal need. Um, And I saw a gap in the market based on that personal need. So years ago, I was struggling with some hormone challenges and I went off the birth control pill. I discovered that I actually had uterine fibroids and symptoms of polycystic ovarian syndrome that were impacting my fertility and my wellness. And so I started seeing naturopaths in addition to my my GP, and I was taking multiple pills multiple times per day. And when I went to find a way to organize them, because I wouldn't take them if they weren't on the counter as a visual cue. And when I went to try to find a way to organize them, there was nothing that looked nice in my space. There were all these sort of ugly highlighter color plastic organizers at the drugstore that didn't really resonate with me, um, both aesthetically, but also functionally. I was commuting three hours a day from the suburbs to my, my corporate job downtown, super busy lifestyle. And there was nothing on the market that, that fit my needs as far as being able to like, you know, take a few pills with me to dinner or to workout class. And so I had this idea that someone should do something about this problem. And then I kind of left it. <laughs> And years later realized after launching my marketing and branding business and being in business for a few years, realized that I was the person to do it. So really it was from a personal need and that sort of just expanded into realizing I wasn't the only one with that problem. And there were other challenges in the industry that a, a company and a product like this could help solve.
0: I love when you are the reason and you've diagnosed the problem for your own life. I feel like it creates such a personal brand and such a powerful business. So I love that. How would you say your background in the branding and advertising space, especially running your own um, company influence how you started Loba? Yeah. I mean, it had a huge influence, but in, in a couple of ways, one,
1: you know, the feedback that we get right away from people with Loba is compliments on the, the brand and the design of the product. And so, you know, my background in, in branding and advertising and the expertise that I built up over the years directly contributed to development of the brand and design of the piece and, and the app and the aesthetics of it. Like We really wanted to make it feel comforting and like this cherished ritual for people and, and design can do that. So it definitely impacted it that way. But then also I would say that if I hadn't successfully started a service and scaled a service-based business, I don't think there's any way I could have jumped straight from um, being an employee in the corporate world, to launching a tech and hardware and product, it would have been an even harder mountain to to scale, um, without that experience first.
0: Can you dig into the transition from corporate world to as an employee to mm-hmm. an agency to entrepreneur, and some of the highlights and maybe lowlights along the way? Mm-hmm. I've personally, I've always been, I've always treated any jobs that I had like I was an entrepreneur
1: in a way, like taking a lot of personal responsibility, a lot of initiatives. I just have that entrepreneurial spirit. I grew up around business owners. My parents were divorced and remarried, and all four of my parents were have been entrepreneurs. I grew up attending events and helping my parents on construction sites with interior design or bookkeeping. So I always sort of just like was exposed to that from a young age. So the transition for me, like it was always something that I wanted to do. But It's a tough choice to make, even for someone with that inclination, because you're going from having a steady paycheck, something you can rely on every month to come through, not having to worry about making ends meet um, because you have organized your life and your expenses around what you know your salary and your intake will be. I never really did because I was just kind of that person, but, but having the opportunity to shut down the computer at the end of the day and not think about work till the next morning. I didn't really do that very often. I was always thinking about the projects that I was working on when I was in the corporate world. But what I definitely miss about that is vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a proper vacation oh, yeah. every year. I book off like a couple days and I'll shut down my work email until everyone in advance, but like going away for two weeks and not look, thinking about or looking at work is not something that I, that has been in my reality for the last six years. So yeah, the, the transition, it can be, a, it can be a tough one. When I first started Armature, there was a period of probably four to six months where I was just spending savings, like living off of savings. And that's always a bit terrifying. And you're mm-hmm. like, am I going to get that contract? Is it going to happen for me? Should I just go back to having a really regular job? The cycle of fear, so the loop in, of anxiety in your head, you really have to work through and start to have faith and trust that you're doing the work and, you, and that it will happen for you.
0: I have a lot more questions coming up about entrepreneurship and risk management Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. But before we get there, I would love to dive into some questions around wellness. Mm. You are in the wellness space, and I think it's a really important one for today's world. But what does wellness mean to you? Mm.
1: To me, that's a very personal um, question because I think everyone's relationship with wellness is is different and it changes, right? Day-to-day, month-to-month. I think that wellness to me right now means feeling grounded in my body, and having peace in my mind. And mostly, I feel that way because when the opposite is true, I I know that I'm not living um, a a life that feels healthy to me. When I feel the opposite of those things, when I have a frantic mind, when my heart rate is elevated from stress, running from meeting to meeting, appointment to like that busyness feeling, when I'm disconnected from my physicality, I know that I'm not living in a healthy space.
0: And how do you stay in that more peaceful state? What are your practices? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a perfect word practices
1: for me, really, it's about ritual. And I use that word a lot personally and with Loba and finding moments of calm in the chaos. So there's things that I like to try to do on a daily basis if I can to sort of ground myself, be more mindful, breath, meditation. Um, But probably more often than that, because sometimes sitting down for 10 to 30 minutes to do those things can be a challenge, Mm
0: -hmm. is
1: really being present in the moment. So for an example of that for me is my morning coffee ritual. There's no day that goes by that I don't have a cup of coffee in the morning. And I very purposely do things like notice even if it's for 10 seconds notice the warmth of the mug in my hand notice the aroma you know breathe it in take a sip look out we have a really lovely view from our home look out of the horizon or notice something in my space and so it's little things like that that I think can make a big difference a word that's going around right now a lot on I think social media is glimmers like taking the moment yes. you heard that yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. a glimmer is essentially that it's like taking a moment to notice something that's beautiful in your day. And it's sort of like the opposite of a trigger. Um, And I love that word. I think it's, it's, it's stunning. So yeah, finding those moments really helps me when things feel chaotic.
0: Thank you for sharing that. The coffee ritual. I love that you call it a ritual. Often I'm like, Kelly, this is actually a coffee addiction, you know, at six in the morning, but that you're like reframing it with generosity to ritual is because it is one, right? It's like, wake up, boil the water, turn on the espresso machine mm-hmm. or whatever your method, pour over, whatever your method mm-hmm. is, no judgment. But it, it really is that kind of like, okay, I'm arriving to a new day.
1: Yeah. So it's a transition. Thank you for reframing
0: that. It yeah. really is. And, and yeah, yeah for me,
1: coffee is like, I will never get, I don't drink a lot of coffee, but I drink a, a cup or two a day. And for me, like, I will never give it that up no matter what um, yeah. people say. It's, it's.
0: <laughs> no matter which way we swing on, whether it's healthy or yeah. not, it's yours forever. Right? It, is, it is
1: mine forever. And You know, I could look at it like, oh, I gotta have a cup of coffee and caffeine and get out the door. And it's, you call it just, you know, making a cup of coffee or you call it like a a daily ritual and really revel in it. And I think you can do that with anything. You can do that with Mm -hmm. sweeping or vacuuming or doing the dishes. Do you know what I mean? And yeah.
0: So interesting in my life, I often find mornings, my expectation for a ritual super high. Mm -hmm. I'm like cup of coffee, journal, meditate, all of those things. I feel sometimes like if I miss the morning ritual moment, the day is a wash. Like I don't have a lot of like afternoon rituals. Right. Do you have any fun ideas for afternoon or like midway through the workday, like three o'clock? Sometimes I, I I would call it maybe a cookie ritual yeah. where I'm like, oh, major low, got to find a cookie. <laughs> what other things do you co- incorporate if you like really miss the morning I find moment? Af- yeah, so. I
1: find the afternoon definitely harder too. For, but, but for me, meditating in the afternoon, for some reason, is more successful than the morning. And so between a meeting, usually I'm at my studio in Gastone um, and I find a little gap in my day and I'll lay down on a, a bench that I have there and, and throw on a meditation. Um, and I find it's also when I need it the most because I've been usually going from meeting to meeting or, you know, handling all the emails and Slack messages coming in. So meditation in the afternoon really works for me. I think same thing, like standing up from your computer, taking a, a stretch break, Looking out at the horizon, if you have you know, lucky enough to have a view from your window, breathing in the fresh air, going for uh, taking the long way to the washroom, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I, as you know, I have a, a six month old. And so things have changed a lot lately with having a baby at home and managing, you know, being the CEO and founder of two companies right now. There's lots going on. And so what it's really, allowed me or taught me to do is to adapt my rituals hmm. in a different environment. Um, so they still happen. They just look a little bit different. So my morning, you know, although I'd like to wake up, have my coffee journal, do some yoga, listen to a meditation all before I start my day. The reality is that's not happening. I'm waking up to a baby who needs me. And I have most days been able to, you know, do that coffee ritual, but while I'm breastfeeding or listening to that morning podcast while I'm getting him ready. And so I think it, you have to allow room for rituals to adapt to your environment and what's going on in the moment to know that it's not always going to be perfect. And, and, and also you mentioned, you know, the day being a wash if the morning mm-hmm. thing doesn't happen, trying to go, okay, that was the past. And now I like, it's never too late to quote save unquote the day, right? Mm-hmm. You can always start fresh and look at it fresh and, and not just write off the rest of the day as you know, if you failed your morning ritual.
0: Great take on rituals. And I actually find it really encouraging because I can sometimes have a negative voice in my mind around if those moments are, yeah, awash or mm-hmm. you can view them as negative towards yourself or like, actually, this is a ritual. Getting out from my computer and taking a long walk instead of yeah, <laughs> getting that report done, it can actually be a ritual.
1: Or you know what else works for me? Connection. Mm. So having someone pop into my studio, calling a phone, giving someone a phone call and just chatting for five minutes, like, there's people in, I think, each of our lives who kind of ground us and just reaching out to them as a touch point in your day um, can kind of bring me back to.
0: That's very, very true. I am really curious. We can have a little section here called hot takes about the wellness space. And I mean, like quite holistically. I mean, for me, when I go to, let's say, Whole Foods, I can tell you like honey and mushrooms is currently in every food, <laughs> you know, trending, yeah. I would say. But I would love to hear from you. Like, what what is happening? Give me some hot takes.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's, there's so much <laughs> happening in the wellness space. And I mean, the thing that stands out to me, it's a little bit sort of pull back or like like a, a zoomed out perspective is more than ever before, I think that people are taking their wellness and their health into their own hands. And whether that's empowered by tech or access to information, or as a result of all the challenges in our healthcare systems, right? Like, like truly since the pandemic, there's been this tidal shift in how we care for ourselves. And, and we've seen the downfall of our healthcare systems, which are already teetering on the edge mm-hmm. and also seeing that no one person or system is going to take care of us. Like we have to advocate for our wellness and our health more than ever before. And I think that's why you see all these, uh, these trends coming out with certain I don't know, adaptogens or like you said, mushrooms or honey or tea or yeah, people are looking for those solutions. And I think they're turning to alternative and integrative practices to find them you know, there's good and there's bad in that, but, but I am seeing this desire for more proactive ownership of our own wellness that I think is driving a lot of innovation in the space Hmm. as well. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that also like, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing sort of collectively, we're all a bit tired of the self-care spin. I'm guilty of using the language occasionally too. And I, I try to be more aware of it, especially when developing content for LOBA. But I believe that like we're kind of done with the BS around self-care like we want to hear real right like the struggles because we're not always going to have the two hours or three hours in the in the morning before we start work to do all this stuff right like we want to hear the struggles and the triumphs and I think there's an appetite especially in social for sharing more like the duality and the complexity of life and taking care of ourselves and and the beauty in that and knowing that like Posing things can sometimes be true. You can love being a mom and also be extremely mournful of your single life, right? You can, like, for example, me love being an entrepreneur and then also really miss being able to disconnect from work or really miss that consistent income, right? And th- those, both of those things can be true at the same time. We can be grateful for our bodies and want to lose a little bit of weight, so I think that that's what I'm seeing is this appetite for just a little bit more realness in the wellness space and how we share about health and wellness. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I, you summed it up so well. I, I even find in my own life when I on social, let's just say when I see people equate like the spa with self care, mm-hmm. it does create a very singular narrative around what self care is, right? It's like getting your nails done, getting our hair cut, like going to the spa. Yeah. And and sometimes for me, self care can actually be like having that phone call you've avoided having with that person you love about a very like needed topic. Like actually, that is okay. I'm I'm gonna care for what's going on for me. So true. And so we've like really limited self care to basically being like almost like re- ve- rewarding. Yeah, re- rewarding our like bodies in a very kind of. Aesthetic way versus the like depths of self care we need, which is okay. Self care can actually be like I'm gonna disappear for 24 hours and Mm -hmm. not text anybody back, or um, So I just don't think there's enough almost like diversity in what we think self care is, or what we we want it to be. Maybe. Yeah, Yeah. that's so true. Just making reflect on. There's almost I was gonna use the word like
1: sort of the stereotypical self care thing is associated a lot with you. You said aesthetics, and I was gonna say sort of vanity, like. Um, yeah. But but you're so right. Self-care could be, yeah, not talking to anyone for a day and just like staying under the covers with no makeup and in your ugly sweats and it could be crying right. it out. It could be, you know, yeah,
0: you're, that's so true. A really good example of this, which is also trending, but I think it's great that it is, is cold plunging. Mm-hmm. And I was just cold plunging yesterday. So I'm like, yeah, I feel amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this like very painful, exhilarating moment that actually when you think about it, you're actually like, I'm in pain. I can't feel my ankles. My fingers are burning. Mm-hmm. It's like not necessarily as glamorous as a lot of other experiences. And so it's just like very interesting. Like there are parts of self-care that I feel like are harder and cold plunging for me would fit into that category. I think we've made wellness like very cozy and sometimes mm-hmm. wellness is a like hard work and I'm sounding maybe like too aggressive with my views. But I also think wellness can be like a lazy day and lots and lots of TV. So,
1: no. And and as you're speaking, I'm thinking about you know working like working with a therapist to work through some traumas that you've been through in the past. That's not going to be easy. Definitely not working through relationship challenges. That's not going to be easy, but that's super important to your wellness. Right? Yeah.
0: Or like this week, I had a two-hour conversation with. I have a side project and with my co-founder and it was like a two hour, your views, my views. And for me, I'm like, that's a exhausting conversation. That is a ton of hard work on like really, you know, expressing your different needs and desires and communication trends. For me, that would never be labeled self-care, but actually that's for me, the like deepest form of self-care is to say like, I see you and I exist. And how do we get through mm-hmm. this intense moment? Cause it's not the typical form. It doesn't feel as like
1: Yeah. It doesn't feel as luxurious or indulgent, if you will, but, but I think the examples that you're bringing up are really important for mental health, Definitely, And and mental health should be a part of self-care because if you're, if you're having a conflict in a relationship in your business, for example, and you don't address it, it's just going to build and build and build and it's running in your head all the Mm -hmm. time. Right. And that's when I, when I mentioned wellness and like peace in my mind, that's what I mean Mm -hmm. is like not having these unresolved things running, like anxious thoughts running through my head all the time. And sometimes that is means confronting things in your life or, or people in your life that may be hard conversations. But I think, yeah, we should be having more of those discussions in a wellness context, for sure.
0: Thanks for theorizing with me. What do you think culture, like in general society, if you could wave a magic wand, like what would you say is something that you would love to see change?
1: I think it, it might be, the, and I don't know if I would have answered this this way, not just having had the conversation we did, but I think it would be more of a, a whole body, whole experience focus on wellness with mental health being mm-hmm. being a huge part of that as well. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, when they think wellness, think cool. mm-hmm. wellness. And it's so interconnected, right? And and we're starting to talk about it and people are starting to, to see that, but- there's this sort of, we have a bit of an epidemic of loneliness. Massive. <laughs> and you see that in like the the, the opioid crisis mm-hmm. in men's health and connection, lack of connection in community. And I think that that is a huge part of, of having healthy, commu- just a healthy society and a society that is well and supported. And so I think relationship, connection, mental health, physical health, like they're all very inter intertwined. Mm -hmm. I have a few at Armature Collective. I have a few healthcare clients and we very frequently use the term mental health is health. Mm -hmm. And so moving wellness from just sort of like a trendy, pretty thing you see on, on Instagram to a more real, um, deeper version of that within,
0: within each of us. Yeah. I would love to circle back to the conversation around entrepreneurship, and risk-taking what strategies or mindset shifts have you personally used to increase your capacity to take risks yeah I've been thinking about this a lot lately I think that's
1: that it's come sort of over time I've built up to a level of risk-taking that I never like 10 years ago never could have imagined that I'd be comfortable with hmm. to be honest I think that like any muscle right? The more you work at the easier it becomes. And I've, I've definitely found some tools that have increased my capacity for managing risk and the stresses that come with it. But I think you, the more that you're out of your comfort zone, the more you get used to being out of your comfort zone. (laughs) Um, The more times you get up on stage, the easier it is to speak publicly. The more times you do a podcast, the easier it is to connect more naturally. And the more times you go to exercise class or spin class, the easier it is to get into kind of the rhythm of it. So I think it's, it's true. It's been true for me for risk-taking as well.
0: Entrepreneurs can sometimes be super guilty of being like, oh, they're a risk taker and they're not. Mm. And sometimes divide the population. And it's like, if you don't have a financial safety net at all, taking massive risk is almost impossible. If you don't have, let's say a partner that is incredibly supportive of, if you fail, like actually you're going to take less risk. Can you tell me more about how you took some of your risks and then the, the nuance almost between like risk and safety net and how those two things interact. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting because you think that, that moving from a
1: corporate job to being an entrepreneur, there's an inherent risk in that regardless. But each individual's, like you said, each individual's personal circumstance is so different. I think that for me, like I'm a worst case scenario kind of person. (laughs) I literally, like when I started Armature, I did this um, and I did have some money saved up. Um, when I started LOBA, you know, uh, Armature pays the bills, but I definitely in both cases sat down and thought like, what's what's the worst that could happen? Hmm. And I reflected on that for a while. And I'm the kind of, I like to write stuff down. Like I wrote it in a notebook. I, I do best case, like what's the best that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? What are the potential downsides? What are the, the potential upside? And can I live with... I mean, obviously you can live with the best case scenario. Can I live with that worst case scenario? Um, And I found that I could live with it. Like I could live with the failure Mm. and I don't invest money in something without going through that process. And I wouldn't take anyone else's money. Like we've had some investors with Loba without making them think about that too. Mm. Like you could lose it all. You could lose everything financially that you're putting into this. Will your life be ruined? Will your kid not get an education? If yes, I don't want it. Hmm. And so, I, I kind of am brutally honest with myself and then also with others about the possible downside. I think it's really important to do that. And in in the risks that I've taken, I've um, whether it be you know business or personal, I've always been comfortable with what what loss could look like.
0: How did you get there? Being comfortable with what loss would look like. Yeah. Through this,
1: I guess through this process of of worst case scenario, like if I'm going, okay, if I, if all this money that I put into it, if if the company fails, will my day-to-day be that different? No. Do I know that I can make money elsewhere? Yes. I, I also, I I have a very, very strong work ethic Mm. and a lot of and I've worked on my money mindset a lot and I have a lot of trust and, and belief in knowing in the fact that I will be okay. Yeah. And part of that comes from a breakdown of ego. I think like, I know that I will be okay because I will do what it takes. If I personally, you know, lose the money that I've invested and have to sell my apartment to cover loan, like whatever that looks like, I will do what I have to do. Mm-hmm. I will Do physical labor. I will paint houses. I will work at a grocery store. I will work at a cafe. I will, and I will find the joy in those roles as best as I can. Um, And I don't know if that comes from growing up in a family that I saw do that too. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling of doing what it takes. And I know that I can do what it takes. Mm -hmm. I trust in that everything will be okay. And it probably, you know, and, and I think a lot of that probably comes from a place of privilege that I've been afforded in life, but I'm not scared of hard work. Yeah. And I'm not scared of downsizing, if you will, what, what life like spending, what life looks like on a daily basis or, or change.
0: Beautifully said. And I think, yeah. I think it's great. Was to- it? I didn't feel no, beautiful. <laughs> well, it is because I mean, you're like willing to note your privilege, which is incredible. I think a lot of people don't necessarily factor privilege into a risk equation. And then mm. you're, you're willing to encounter the worst case scenario as loss. And then also know, yeah, I'll work my way out of it. Um, Where I think a lot of people probably, I think it's easier to probably say like, this business is going to blow up and I'm going to be a millionaire and not necessarily register the, when it doesn't do that, or if it doesn't do that, you know, I'll go work at Home Depot and be totally fine. Like love life. Um, And I think a lot of people maybe aren't okay with that thought experiment. So I do think it's beautiful a couple thoughts. One, I saw my my family in very, very hard financial
1: times and I saw and I've seen them do well. And what there always has been in, in my house and in my family unit is love mm-hmm. and joy, right? And and finding those moments. So they, my, my parents taught me a lot and my extended family taught me a lot in that area. Um, and then the other thing, I saw something online, I think I shared it on Instagram like a month ago or something. It was like every founder's dream is to sell their very comp- complex high profile business and then go like work at a coffee shop.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> like I do sort of have this this fantasy about yeah like working at a diner and just hearing people's stories and drinking <sighs> coffee across the counter. Yeah,
0: mine is book like bookstore as well. Just like Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. going <laughs> to be so sweet to like <laughs> shop and talk to people about good books. That would be so fun.
1: Yeah. But, but something else came up for me when you were speaking was around, oh, how a lot of people just sort of expect or plan for the best case scenario or like can see themselves living. I think I need to do more there. Hmm. I think I'm, I'm fairly, I'm definitely an optimist, but I'm just very, when it comes to these types of things in like my decision-making process about risk, I'm fairly, I guess, conservative or like, um, I don't just dive all in without doing all that work. And I probably don't spend enough time thinking about like the vision, like the other side of it and really like living that belief that it's going, definitely going to happen. And I think maybe I did more earlier on, but as you get sort of beaten down over and over again, it gets a bit harder to, to go there
0: sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been trying to work on my mindset lately, especially as we're, we're raising capital right now from Loba around living more in that, in that I love it. space of the best case scenario. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up because that sort of reminded me. Well,
0: I like to call myself a pragmatic visionary. It's like, yep, here are yeah. the steps and here's the vision. And it's not as glamorous. As, you know, it's not like we're going to be the only wellness company on the face of the planet. Probably that isn't true, but there, you know, there's beautiful vision out there, but also you can like be pragmatic about it versus mm-hmm. not necessarily grounded in truth. Um, and I sense the same thing from you. But what I've heard throughout this conversation is your ability to make decisions, which I think is so important. Um, Can you talk about your process in decision making? Yeah. Well,
1: I'll talk about Loba specifically. You know, I think that when starting Loba, I built in a number of, I think my dad used this term actually in a conversation with me one day We had a lot of early kind of walk and talk conversations, was I built in a number of off ramps. Hmm. So natural places in the discovery and research process where if things weren't working out, I could sort of abort mission and and be comfortable with the losses that that I would have had at that point. So really kind of naturally evolved. Like first I said, okay, I'm comfortable putting in the time and the energy, right? And a few thousand dollars to investigate this idea a bit more. What might it look like? How much might it cost? You know, all those kinds of things. And then Next, I was like, okay, I think there's something here. I see the market, right? I've interviewed the naturopaths and the practitioners. I've talked to patients. I've done the research. I've seen there's, there's enough competitive sort of alternatives, but nothing exactly like LOBA. And so I've confirmed the problem. I've, I've found the need. Let's start reaching out for quotes and let's start investing in design and development and spending a bit of money on that. And then after that, it's like, okay, I'm willing to pay X amount of money to hire a design firm now. And okay, it's a phased project. I can hit pause mm-hmm. and stop anywhere along the line. And the, the actual the biggest decision point with Loba was, Lobo was the, the decision to manufacture. Okay. Like do we manufacture now? Because investing in all the upfront costs around like the creation of, of molds, and it's a lot of money. And we, I know that we wouldn't get back that money unless we sold, you know, X amount of units. So to help with that decision, I actually opened up a, a waitlist, and we got over a thousand people on our waitlist. And then I opened up pre sales and I saw that people were purchasing in advance. So I saw that there was an appetite. And then that's when I sort of went in all in more financially and mm-hmm. brought some investors on board. And, you know, it's, it, it's sort of like, you know, when you walk into a, like a cold lake. Yes. Or I don't know if you do this when you cold plunge. I'm not a huge cold plunger yet. I, I want to get more into the practice, but you sort of, when I walk into a lake and it's cold, I sort of like dip my toe in and then I get comfortable there. And then I maybe like wade into my knees. And then there's some points that are scarier than others. Like when it goes over your waist or over your chest, you know, but you can always turn around and walk out at any point. And so that's how I tend to approach risk-taking as well. And like the planning for it is, and knowing, but it's a bit of a mind game, right? Like I could stop this at any time. Mm -hmm. If it's uncomfortable, I could stop at any time, but I'm choosing (laughs) to push through the discomfort of this to get to that next that next phase.
0: Great, great analogy. I love that visual. And I think you're really right in the process of launching and creating things. I am very curious if you have faced any challenges being a female entrepreneur in any phase of LOBA or, or <laughs> your agency.
1: Yeah, I think it applies to more than just entrepreneurs. There's sort of like the general being a woman in business where I always feel like you have to prove there's a, there's a you have to prove yourself more in the beginning, and it's probably even more true for people with less privilege than myself. But I always feel like the need I have to prove myself more versus just the sort of acceptance that you will be good at something. You have to prove that you're going to be good at something mm-hmm. or that you can do it upfront. And I sort of have always, in my case, loved that challenge. Like I'm going to show you. Oh yeah. And I'm motivated by it for better or worse. I wish it didn't exist, but when it comes to LOBA, I do believe that female founders are, are over-mentored and underfunded. And that's honestly been the hardest challenge for me with launching LOBA, access to capital. I got to the point where I had so many people mentoring me, giving me advice. Like Literally, my calendar was full all the time with mentorship meetings and, and whenever you there are certain funding programs where you, they ha- you have to give have a mentor that you work with. And I understand why they do those mm-hmm. things, but you get to the point where when you're at a certain level of experience in business, like you're just being over-mentored. Mm-hmm. Advice and advisors are so incredibly important. And so I don't want to seem like I'm writing that off like and, or being ungrateful for the mentorship I have had. But I've done the programs. I've pitched in the stages. I've been mentored like crazy. And what I need now the most is access to to resources so that I can execute what I know works, right? right? And honestly, that, that looks like funding. Mm-hmm. And I'm not alone in that. You know, like the, the vast majority of women-owned businesses will not get the capital that they need to scale. If they're, if they're businesses, startups, that their product is also catered towards women. And, and why? What's your take? I think that it takes longer to explain... A problem to someone who doesn't has never experienced that problem before, hmm. right? So if you've never experienced that problem, you're like, "Oh, this exists. I didn't, I didn't realize this was a thing. Why would someone spend that amount of money on 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 this?" So when you're when you're a female founder with a female-oriented business or product, pitching in a room full of men, the the the, the probability, mathematically, that they're going to experience have experienced the problem. Is less interesting, and so we need women who who are investing as well, and women decision makers in the room. And this is not sort of—I mean, the majority of my investors are have been men so far. Um, so this is not a slight; it's just mathematical reality, (laughs) like statistic, statistical reality of the probability that they will be able to personally associate with the problem that you're solving. So it does take longer to explain that. It does take longer to show them the market, improve yourself. The, the stat that, you know, sort of always mentioned that I tend to mention on most podcasts I'm on is that like under two two percent, sorry, of venture capital funding goes to women-owned businesses.
0: Wow. Two percent. Are you
1: serious? Yeah. And I think it went down to like 1.8 uh, just after the pandemic, but it's 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 nothing. And so it's easy to be scared off by that. And it certainly has been kind of a mind like thing for me too, to get through is, so I have to be, if, if women only get 2% of the VC funding, I have to be not just like the best, but like the best of the best of the best. Mm -hmm. Like I have to be so perfect to even be that, have a chance Mm -hmm. of getting a chance to get that money, right?
0: Yeah, well absolutely.
1: There was a study done, I hope I use the right terminology. But there's a study done about questions that investors ask men in pitch meetings versus questions that investors ask women in pitch meetings. Are you familiar with this? I know. I I haven't Okay I I I think it's there's a certain language that they use, but essentially like Investors will ask men, you know, it's not proactive, like, like questions about their vision. Okay. Whereas, and how they're going to overcome a challenge versus preventative, I think is the one that they ask women, where they'll say something like, they'll ask them about, instead of the vision, they'll ask them about the problem that they see. Wow. Instead of saying, how are, are you going to get past this challenge? They'll, they'll ask them something that's like more of a negative context. And so when you're already just in a pitch meeting, the questions that you're getting are already, you're defending yourself more than you're helping to, than you're, than you're giving the opportunity to share the vision. And so there's been, I know that some sort of female funds and, and groups that support women founders are trying to offer training to women. For how to how to change those like how to turn those questions back, and make them the more positive wow. version when you're presented with it. But then we have to be trained, right, to deal with the unfair questions that are being presented to us, right? Um. So I know I know it's called the pre- preventative questions um, that they ask them, but I can't remember the, the positive that ones is like so the way fascinating. They men. Yeah. How yeah. far
0: upstream do you think the problem is? Like, if only two percent of <laughs> VC capital goes to women, is it that there are like one is that there are less women competing for VC or is it actually just like the the amount of competitiveness amongst women is so high obviously um, yeah. like 98 percent of VC is going to men so that's like quite clear but is that there's just like not enough women in in no, the running I don't think there's any
1: no I don't think there's any lack of women looking for funding.
0: so it's just that women aren't it's, it's also part of it is
1: yeah it's also part of it like even like getting a meeting you you really need warm intros hmm To VCs.
0: And how Um, many women do you know in VC that can like funnel money to women? (laughs) Like that's also a massive issue, right? Is VC is very male dominated. mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, I want to say it is getting better. Yeah. And I'm seeing people trying to do the work. But, you know, when the majority of venture capital firms have sort of like a general email inbox that you're sending to Mm -hmm. and you don't know. And you can't connect with someone one-on-one and tell your story. It's a, it's like, there's kind of like a gatekeeping thing happening, which I on one hand understand, like if they're getting thousands of pitch decks right, a day, right. like how do you sort through them? It's just, it's, it's, it's common human. Like the way society operates is that if you know someone
0: mm-hmm.
1: who knows someone, Definitely. you're going to connect to them. Foot in the right? door. That's just yeah. the way that it works. Yeah. Foot in the doors. So I don't, I don't know that I have the answer. I mean, I think that like the changes that we're trying to make societally and, and, you know, the work that's being done in, in feminism and and, like it's a, it's a problem. It's very, very, very upstream.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's really. And then even just because of the way a lot of Women are conditioned to behave. Sometimes women are harder on women as well, right? So you could have a whole bunch of more women. Yeah, in, I've seen that in VC, and still that number of women getting that capital reducing. Yeah. So I think we need a, a huge disruption. I would love to see more women getting that support, and also more women really supporting each other, and not just in a mentorship way, but like we believe in your product. Here's the money, <laughs> and I mean, when you think about it, like w- I'm going to
1: mess up which year it was, but wasn't it wasn't like till the 70s that women couldn't like have their own bank account or. It was. It was shockingly like, recent.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: yes. So it's like, of course, the the the, the knowledge of financial markets and investing, it, women just don't. We don't have the generations of that yes. knowledge, right? Definitely. So there are programs. I'm going to give a shout out to the 51 and Movement 51, based out of Calgary. They're they're working to train women in how to invest. incredible. Um, and there's a lot of angel, there's angel groups here in, in BC as well, doing the same, teaching people about investment, giving them like a, a low buy-in, hmm. you know, a few five to $15,000 instead of the hundreds of thousands of dollars, that, you know? Um, so there, there are things happening, but I think, I think a lot of it is time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Education. and, and yeah. 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 And I, I think women as decision makers and policy makers from a, like a global, federal, provincial, level. I just think we need change all across the board and still in 2023, women aren't the decision makers. And so it's not surprising to me that that change is slow. Mm -hmm. I have faith it will happen. I agree. Yeah. I think we're moving in good directions. I also think Mm -hmm. there's like pretty significant backlash right now and that's shocking, but I still think we're moving in a good direction at a reasonable pace. Agreed. Kate, I would love to hear how you... Balance is maybe not the right word, but you have lots of initiatives. You have a family. You have yeah. a baby. Um, what does it look like to prioritize your life? How is, What does that look like for you? <laughs> prioritize again. It sounds so businessy for like f- family life, but tell me how that works. Oh no, gosh. I have like Excel documents for... <laughs> the baby. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I
1: I apply all the business principles that I can to organize my life. Yeah. I mean, the reality for me is that you can't prioritize everything. Like it's just not all going to happen. Right. And so for me, I take it sort of day by day, week by week. What's top of my priority list shifts all the time. What I can say is that I've, been, I've gotten very good at being present hmm. wherever I am. So whether, you know, when I'm home with my little one, like, I really love being home with him and, like, don't want to leave him. And wow. then when I'm at work, I like, don't want to leave work. Um, when I'm out with friends, I'm just really – So i become much more present than I was prior to being a mom, actually. Mm.
0: Can you say more? Um, because my experience of witnessing some people around me is the opposite. Sure. Let me just kind of, like, reflect on that for a second.
1: I, I... – Maybe I was very chaotic before. <laughs> maybe I was abnormally chaotic before I love it where I just have so much running through my head all the time like I when I when I was home I mostly be working or thinking about Mm. work because I love what I do and like I'll have an idea and I'll you know want to run with it I think that you know when you have when I have my little son in front of me and he needs something there's no ignoring that like he he might be whiny or or screaming at the top of his lungs or need an extra cuddle or be laughing like crazy and I'm just like so zoned in on him Mm -hmm. when he's in all of those moments that I don't really think about work. When I'm at work, I just, I like when I go to the studio, for example, I just love it so much. And I, and I think that also, again, it probably is because coming from the, the, the place of privilege that I am, my partner is staying home with the baby. Hmm. So I've worked, I, I, I took three months off of armature. and I, I worked through uh, those early days on Loba as best that I could I probably felt a bit more scattered then in those early days, for sure. So I do have someone at home, just absolutely in love with his son, who I just completely trust, mm-hmm. and so there's no worry there for me during the day that that he's not being taken care of or that he's not getting what he needs. So maybe it's probably a lot of that, to be honest. And then so when I and then so because I miss him during the day even though I'm loving what I'm doing, when I get home, I just want to be with him. Oh, yeah. And then because I love what, my work so much, when I go to work the next morning, I just want to focus on on that.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think
1: before I just, there was, there was a little bit more uh, intermingling, I guess, in my brain and in my headspace and in my time of, of work and, and personal life. And now I'm sort of forced to separate them a little bit, which I think has been a healthy thing yeah. for me. I mean, having said that, Baby was at the studio with me yesterday because <laughs> his dad had a lunch and learn to go to, and I wanted to support him in doing that. Yeah, I just I, I feel more present than I have in in the personal side of my life mm-hmm. as a result of having
0: him. Yeah, thank you for sharing your your journey. It's wonderful to hear. Of course. Well, Kate, I would love to talk to you. I have so many more questions about business and VC and you as a mother and the businesses that you are building. So maybe another conversation is due. However, I'll end with my last question for you. Uh, What does bold mean to you? I love the word bold, by the way. Like I just, it's so empowering. Bold to
1: me means, it means following your heart. Hmm. And it means going all in when you know you've done the work. And that could be, like in relationship is a great example too, not just in business, um, and I think especially it's bold when you do it regardless of what fear others have projected onto you or what fear others in your life may have, and just knowing knowing that it's right for you and, and going ahead and doing it.
0: Well said, well Kate. Okay, thank you for our conversation. I've loved learning about your perspectives and your life and all the things you're building and just grateful that you've taken the time to be here on Bold. So thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Kelly. My pleasure. This podcast is produced in part by Pam Cameron. A massive thank you to all those who have supported me along the way.